Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. This is episode 50 and it's also the first anniversary of our first episode. Uh, Both that episode and this episode uh, were previews of WWDC, Apple's developer conference. And so uh, fitting that we should be returning to that topic a year later. Uh, But because it's the first anniversary and we've been doing this for a year now, we are going to spend a little time today doing something of a retrospective, kind of looking back over some of the episodes from the past year that you may have missed or perhaps you've joined us partway through the year and missed some of these episodes entirely. Uh, So we'll be talking about some of our favorite episodes, but also talking about some of the topics that were raised in those episodes. And some of those are evergreen topics are very much still relevant today. Others seemed important at the time and have kind of faded into the background. And so we'll be not just looking back over the podcast's first year, but also looking back at the past year in Uh, consumer technology in general, uh, things have moved on to some extent over that year. So in that first episode, I think the audio quality was pretty bad. I I re-listened to that episode earlier today. Uh, So hopefully that's improved since then, although I understand last week the levels were a bit off uh, between the two of us. So hopefully that's fixed this week. Um, Things were fairly Apple-centric early on. It's uh, an area of specific expertise for Aaron, who's uh, written books on iMovie in the past and uh, comes to this topic with a particular uh, focus on Apple as it were but we've tried to broaden out from there Uh, I was looking back at at the episodes and the tags that uh, I've attached to them as I've posted them to the website 36 of our 50 episodes have some Apple reference in them Uh, but we do have 12 with that are tagged as Google and seven Microsoft five is Facebook and so on so we have tried to add in other topics over time and not not remain sort of Apple centric Um, the format of the podcast has changed over time too so In our second episode, episode two, we introduced something that we call the question of the week. And many of our episodes since then have featured that in which we take a question and try to one of us answers that question and a variety of sort of sub questions attached to it. And that's included things like Apple's PR strategy, uh, Windows 10 and and where it came from and where it's going. Uh, Elon Musk and his comments about Apple using Foxconn to make cars, uh, the Chan Zuckerberg initiative and so on. We've covered a lot of different topics during that segment. And I think it's been a favorite part of the podcast for both of us, both to prepare and then to, to actually go through on the episodes. Um, but we wanted to take some time to talk through some of our favorites, as I say, and some of the history of the tech industry over the last year too. Uh, after that, though, we'll move on to talking about Apple's developer conference that's happening next week and uh, what we expect to see there and kind of what we think is important there. So uh, in the show notes, I'll try to include a reference to the timestamp for when that discussion starts in case you want to skip ahead to that. But uh, we'll be spending the next sort of 20 minutes or so, I think, probably looking back over the past year, uh, both as regards the podcast specifically and then uh, stuff from the world of tech during that time too. So let's kick off with a discussion of some of the episodes that we've enjoyed doing the most and enjoyed being part of. Aaron, why don't you kick us off? What what have been some of your favorites? Well, uh, I'll pick a couple that you did. Um, I really enjoyed the Apple PR uh, changes uh, we talked about uh, not very far into the podcast. I think it was, in fact, episode five. Apple's PR strategy has changed a lot. You know, the truth is under Steve Jobs, it stayed the same for a very long time. Very tight-lipped, zero access to any executives, even to Steve Jobs himself. I mean, for him to do a news interview was relatively rare. And uh, over the last year, you've seen a lot more um, openness. Um, Obviously not in terms of sort of sharing roadmaps or anything like that, but, but just more openness in terms of access to other executives, you know, Phil Schiller talking through Twitter, 
for right. I think is yep. a good example of that. It definitely feels like with that leadership change, Apple is, has really changed the way it, it talks with and engages with the public. Yeah, it's interesting too. I mean, speaking of Phil Schiller today, Apple made this variety of App Store announcements, which we'll talk about later uh, ahead of WWDC. But the way that the news was got out was through a series of interviews with everybody from John Gruber to uh, the uh, Loop uh, team to um, the Telegraph in the UK to... Uh, the Verge and a number of other publications, and so you know, rather than just a press release, it was a series of conversations between Phil Schiller personally and, and a variety of publications, and that's another evidence of that. And obviously, the various podcasts that uh, Phil Schiller's done uh, over the past few months with John Gruber specifically is another example of that. So, definitely does feel like things have kind of opened up and evolved on that front. Um, go ahead. Well, and that they've been set up to to have to answer questions, which is another thing that has not at all been typical. Apple likes right. to control the way the message goes out. And yeah. I mean, you know, listening to Craig Federighi, you know, getting asked really hard questions by John Gerber, that was really cool. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was really just fascinating. And I actually enjoyed, you know, hearing these Apple executives be in a position where it's not scripted, where it really right. is. Because they, they're so good at the scripting that it feels natural when they give, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, a keynote, like introducing some products like we'll see next week. But, uh, but you know, it was fun to hear them before any scripting occurs rather than after rehearsing who knows how many times. Right, right, absolutely. Um, we'll include links to these episodes, by the way, on the website. And also something else I've put up today is a full episode listing. So if you go to podcast.beyonddevices, you will see now in the menu at the top, there's a link to the full episode listing where you can easily see uh, all the episodes that we've done in the past. And, and each of those has a title that includes the major topics we discussed that week. So it'll make it easy for you to find past episodes that you may want to listen to again or, or that we mentioned today. But we'll cl- include links to specific ones that we mentioned here. One of my favorites was episode 10. We talked about uh, Apple, Google, and privacy uh, and kind of the degree to which these companies are focusing on that. Uh, topic and the degree to which it might, for example, hold Apple back as it seeks to develop services and so on. It's something that we discussed way back then. That's you know, sort of ten months ago or something now, um, but very relevant still today. And I, you know, in my conversations with reporters ahead of WWDC next week, I've been asked about that topic several times. You know, is this a disadvantage for Apple in you know developing Siri and and AI and services in general and so on? So that's well worth a listen to go back to that one. I think because we had an interesting conversation back then about. Uh, to what extent this was an advantage for Apple versus a disadvantage and, and vice versa for Google. Like you said, this really is an evergreen topic. When I think of what the year has brought, especially with the FBI fight that Apple has had, uh, you know, it's just really fascinating to, to watch the contours of how Americans feel about their privacy taking shape over the last year. Um, because there was a real you know, PR battle going on between the FBI and Apple and uh you know to to the credit of both entities neither really backed down in any substantial way largely because they obviously are uh, you know feel the force of their convictions about you know where these lines need to be drawn um i I think in particular i and this is i guess just more to do with my political persuasion but i'm happy to see a company like apple standing up with courage um you know, and confidence about something that they feel is a matter of principle. I think it would be easy for Apple to give in on that issue and all kinds of other privacy-related issues. And it's hard to imagine that this is just a pure sort of marketing ploy 
you know, like where the company, where your stuff is, where your data are safe. Right. Um, it definitely feels like it's a principled stand. And uh, I don't know, it just those, those don't feel super common these days, especially with really big companies. Mm-hmm. And so I've enjoyed that part of the of the privacy and encryption topic this this year's sort of watching with fascination as as the public debate has has raged on yeah absolutely yeah i think you know that that fbi topic in particular is one that we covered for three episodes in a row between 34 and 36 we we covered it briefly in the first two and then we did a deeper dive uh during the question of the week segment uh, about the all writs act which was this uh, act that was used as a basis for some of the FBI's uh, legal uh, requests. Uh, and that was a good example of an episode where we uh, tapped into some of your expertise, Aaron, about legal matters specifically. And, and those have been some of my favorite episodes, I think, where we've tapped into either your legal expertise or, or you know, what you do as a business school professor. You know, episode 11, we talked about Apple and Samsung patents and some of the legal stuff around that. Uh, episode 26, we talked about the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which taps into some of the um, kind of social entrepreneurship and so on that, that you uh, work on. Uh, the All Writs Act that I just mentioned, episode 36, corporate social responsibility in episode 40, uh, and then corporate venture capital in 42, which I know you said before we started recording was one of the favorite ones for you to prepare as well. Yeah, that was a good one for me because I got to have a fun conversation with my brother-in-law, who I think I mentioned in that episode, also teaches here at the business school with me. And uh, that's his area of expertise. And so it was fun to to take all that and to 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 translate it as far as the the podcast and our topics are concerned right yeah absolutely um one of my other favorites was one i did a few weeks ago and nothing personal aaron but it didn't involve you but um (laughs) it was episode 45 when aaron was traveling in ghana for a couple of weeks i did interviews with a couple of people and, and episode 45 was an interview with Ryan Wright, who's the CMO at Cobalt Music, but it was just an opportunity to discuss what's going on in the music industry right now. And although we didn't kind of call it a question of the week, it really was a a sort of question of the week, but involving a a third party or a guest on the podcast was really about the state of the music industry, the rise of streaming and uh, the business model associated with that and the implications of all that. So if you haven't listened to that one, I recommend that one. Episode 46 was the week after, and that was uh, where I interviewed Christopher Mims, is a technology columnist at the Wall Street Journal. It was also an interesting interview. On both of those, unfortunately, we had various audio and other technical issues that meant that on the first, the audio quality isn't great. On the second, I couldn't hear Christopher for a lot of that episode. And so the conversation wasn't as interactive as I wanted it to be. But uh, in both cases, I think you still got some good value out of the conversation. Any other episodes that you want to highlight, Aaron? Um, two. Uh, one was the... Uh the question of the week you did on publishing to Apple News, um, I think that was episode 38. Um, that was a really fascinating one because, oh no, sorry, 41, episode 41. That was a fascinating one to me because I have never worked with this. And, you know, the funny thing I've noticed is that we never really talked very much about Apple News, even though it had been out for months and months. We mm-hmm. never really talked much about them, about Apple News until recently, largely because it sort of felt like Apple hasn't really fully figured out what it wants to do with this thing yet. And that still seems to be true even now. And I think your rundown of the different publishing tools available to get your, to, you know, to get whatever it is you're writing onto Apple News demonstrates that Apple has sort of been kind of approaching it in a way that appears very half-hearted and it seems to continue to be that way, and I'm curious what changes we might see next week uh, at WWDC as far as Apple News is concerned. Mm, yeah. Um, the, the other one that I thought was was prophetic almost 
from you was talking about iMessage as a platform. And and uh, the funny thing is, is all of these other messaging platforms have opened up in the ways you predicted, except for iMessage. Right. <laughs> and so, I mean, MG Siegler just had this, just had this post last week talking about uh, how amazing it was that he was able to, to to call an Uber ride from call up an Uber ride from within Facebook Messenger, and you know he kind of gushed about how cool that was and how it was a better experience than using even the native Uber app. Um, you know this idea of messaging as a platform, uh, which has been like you said going on in Asia for a while, is now picking up steam in the United States. You know within a couple months of you kind of predicting it with the exception that it hasn't happened actually on iMessage yet. so Yeah, and that's something we'll talk about, I think, in the in the next segment when we talk about WWDC. You know, is that something that's going to start to change this year? Um, because I think that's a big question for me going into next week. Um, so a couple of the other things I thought were interesting to talk about. We had an episode, episode 16, which talked about content blockers in iOS and, you know, more commonly, I guess, referred to as ad blockers because that's the main use case. But um, we talked about it. it was a huge deal in the news at the time. Everybody was freaking out about it. And as I think we talked about at the time, it kind of has ended up totally fizzling. I mean, it's been a, a complete non-issue. Um, you know, several of these ad blockers kind of leapt to the top of the App Store charts uh, in the space of a couple of days and then just disappeared from view afterwards. And even though ad blocking as a trend and as a as a, as a topic hasn't gone away, um, you know, the iOS aspect of it, which we used as the hook for our conversation about it, seems to have completely fizzled. Yeah, I agree. I, I think part of that has had to do with the fact that, at least in my experience, none of the content blockers that I downloaded or put to use had a fantastic user experience. Mm-hmm. I think um, some of them felt fiddly. Some of them were overdoing it. Uh, the publishers did their best to make sure that using a content blocker was a bad experience. And some publishers, you know, would essentially prevent full access if you had one set up. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think, I think, for me, it was just an issue of uh, attrition. If anything else, I think I just kind of moved on, and I, I can't even remember what content blockers I still have enabled on my iPad or iPhone. I, I, I just haven't even paid very much attention to it. Life kind of goes back to normal, I guess. But mm-hmm. I think the upside of that was that publishers, you know, web publishers were put on notice that, uh, you know, they can't keep pushing out really terrible experiences for people and expect us to just take it. And and that was really the heart of the controversy, right, was was this idea that uh, that, you know, the basically the consumers right that are getting all this advertising poured onto them mm-hmm. that you know they if needed will take matters into their own hands right right um one of the other things that we uh that i thought was interesting is you know over the past year kind of what's happened to apple I and mean, i said at the beginning that we started out fairly apple focused and we happen to be talking about them today as on our first episode but you know we tried to broaden out from there but if you look at what's happened at apple over the past year you know a year ago, they were still riding that wave of the iPhone 6 launch and the massive growth that it was driving. Uh, things were really looking very positive. There wasn't much of a sign at that point that things were going to start slowing down. And here we are a year later. Apple's had its first you know, year-on-year shrinkage in recent memory, um, first shrinkage in the iPhone sales year-on-year. Uh, year. Um, you know, Things have really changed quite dramatically, and the industry as a whole has kind of changed in different ways as well. Um, you know, Amazon's kind of had a resurgence over the past year driven by AWS. Uh, Google's been through this interesting transformation as they've become Alphabet. Uh, and, you know, we had an episode 
where we kind of broke down that that move to kind of uh, change the structure of Google and uh, made some predictions about what might happen there. And some of that's come true and actually a lot faster than I would have thought. Um, you know, one of our kind of parting predictions on that uh, segment was to talk about how uh, some of the alphabet businesses might come under more pressure with this kind of renewed or increased scrutiny. And, and we've seen, you know, Nest now with a change in leadership there. We've seen, you know, Verily's been kind of in trouble here and there. Um, Google's spinning off its uh, or is trying to sell its robotics business. You know, there's been a lot more change there than I would have predicted, even having made the broad prediction that this would happen at some point over the next year. So um, it's been interesting to watch that happen. Microsoft has kind of continued to go through something of a resurgence, although they're really struggling in the phone business, as we've talked about several times. Uh, Facebook continues to go kind of from strength to strength. Twitter continues to struggle. You know, it's been such an interesting year in terms of the tra trajectories of these different companies. Yeah, I'll say, you know, the, the Alphabet thing has been fascinating to me because who would have predicted that a company like Nest would have done basically nothing over the last year? I mean, if you look at the at the company itself, and I mean, no really new, fascinating products. You know, no like substantial growth that they could talk much about. I mean, I, it, it's interesting that it, it makes me. Another thing about Nest was all the was all the employee griping that leaked out, and it really makes you wonder what would have happened or how it would have been different if Google had stayed just as sort of one big conglomerate you know mm -hmm. one one big massive activity rather than these more separate subsidiaries i, I wonder you know would I, like i wonder if uh if uh, tony would still be running you know the nest unit at this point for example if it if it hadn't been spun off as a separate company right right yeah i think the combination of the alphabet change and uh, ruth porat the cfo taking over in that role um, the combination of those two things seems to have really triggered a, an increased level of scrutiny for the other bets businesses. And uh, and I'm realizing actually that prediction that I made wasn't made on, on an episode where we discussed Alphabet specifically. It was in a 2016 predictions, uh, which is episode 27. Oh, right. Um, and, That's uh, going to be a fun one to revisit. Yeah, that will be. That will be. And we'll have to go back <laughs> to that list at the end of the year and see what we got right and wrong. Um, the only one that sticks in my head from that is that the iPad did not get... Uh, um, 3D touch. Yes. So. Yeah. Not yet, anyway. Maybe, maybe the iPad Air will in the fall. Who knows? <laughs> but yeah, no, that would be good to revisit. Um, one of the other things I thought was fun is last week we talked about the smart home. Um, you know, speaking of Tony Fidel and Nest, we talked about the smart home and how the retail side of it wasn't going very well and how the services side was more promising right now. And then Tony Fidel, who's you know, this guy who's all about creating consumer products for retail sale uh, steps down and his replacement is a guy who's never run kind of a consumer electronics or retail business he's you know used to run the uh, part of motorola that made set-top boxes and modems and routers and things like that um, which obviously gets sold through cable operators and in the announcement of of his taking over um, Fidel made references to his great history of partnerships and working with cable operators and so on. And so it just makes you wonder whether Nest is going down this route of uh, services rather than retail, which fits very well with what we talked about in last week's episode. So sometimes these things take a long time to play out and sometimes they, they end up being topical and relevant again much sooner than you expect them to. Yeah, that's true. I, I think one of the things is I think back on the past year, is how slowly the smartwatch market is maturing 
much slower than I think I expected. I, I've made this prediction a couple times already, but I think those the single-use fitness bands are are headed for pretty rough commoditization, and, and 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 there's already a lot of that kind of going on. But I just don't see a future for a company like Fitbit. Um, it, you know, it, it, they they definitely feel like um, like the flip camera of you know today, and. Honestly, I expected that to go faster, and it, it, it still hasn't come about. I'm not throwing away that prediction. I still think it's going to hold true, but I think the smartwatch market has been developing really slowly, and I think a lot of that has to do with Apple. I, you know, the truth is nobody else out there is really pushing the envelope. I should say nobody is really pushing the envelope with any dramatic innovations since Apple has introduced the Apple Watch. and. I don't know if it's because people kind of sit around waiting to see what Apple does, um, or if there's just not room for any dramatic innovations, and this is going to, in the end, be a pretty niche product. But um, but this has been a slowly maturing product category, and that has been surprising to me. Yeah, no, it has been interesting to see that. And what we'll come back to talking about Watch OS and so on as we talk about WWDC, but it's, yeah, it's, it's been the year of the Apple Watch in some ways, and yet, you know, we haven't um, seen a lot of movement on that front, certainly not in hardware, and we haven't seen a lot from other manufacturers that's really moved the story forward either. Well, let's move on to talking about WWDC then and uh, lots of announcements that Apple might be making there. Um, as in our first episode, this is a preview, so we have some reports, some of which are pretty reliable, of what we're likely to see next week, but there's a lot of uh, scope for speculation as well and uh and most of you just want to talk about what we're expecting to see, but also you know what Apple needs to be doing, what they need to be demonstrating uh, there in order to kind of move their own sort of narrative and story forward. Um, and you know, again, I've been contacted by a number of reporters, especially today, actually, for whatever reason, a lot of them were writing their preview pieces today. Uh, but I talked to quite a few of them, and, and the first thing that almost all of them want to talk about is Siri. Um, so it feels like a good place for us to start this conversation as well. Aaron, what's your kind of take on? What we'll see with Siri, what we need to see with Siri, that kind of thing. I think uh, the the ability for third party developers to plug into Siri is going to be the potentially biggest biggest shift to Siri since it was first announced. Um, and I would say to these digital voice assistants generally, uh, what I'm predicting is going to happen next week is it's going to be a lot more limited and difficult than people are expecting that it's not going to be quite as magical or amazing only because I think the reason Apple hasn't done this to date is because it's hard. It's got to be hard to bake this in. Um, I think processing language uh, is a like spoken language is a huge challenge and more importantly, user intent, you know, inferring it from whatever it is that they're saying. And uh, I suspect that this first round of it is going to be pretty limited. Like Apple's going to, categorize the specific kinds of things that your app will be able to get done through Siri requests. So, you know, I, it, it is going to feel really limited, but it's going to open the door. I think notifications for, it's easy to forget how, how, how sort of ineffective and useless notifications were in iOS. And it took a little while for Apple to figure that out, but now that they have notifications are, are, actually really useful in iOS and, and are baked in a way that I think we now take for granted. And I'm expecting a similar kind of evolution when it comes to Siri. And so what's probably going to happen in, 
and this is again just a guess, is that it's going to be somewhat limited. I think some people are going to be disappointed what, on what Siri can do for third-party apps, but uh, Apple has a tendency to sort of test the waters on stuff like this. And I think the bigger changes we'll see next year, so it'll feel a lot more evolutionary than revolutionary. Yeah, it's it's worth thinking through some of the complications of doing this because it is hard to do kind of third-party app command through Siri, not least because you have to be clear about which app you want to carry out whatever action you're asking for. That's so, right. you know, right now you say play Taylor Swift's latest album. You don't have to mention music or Apple Music or the iPod app or anything else. You just say play Taylor Swift's latest album and it just starts playing in Apple Music because that's the app that Apple set up to play music. If you have Spotify or some other music app installed and you want it to play there, what do you say? Um, do you have to say Spotify, play Taylor Swift's latest album? Not that it's there. Um, or do you have to say open the Spotify app and play blah, 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 blah? Or, you know, what is the wording that you'll need to use to specify that you want a particular app to handle a task? It won't be enough just to say what the task is. You're going to have to somehow identify the app. And so it could be quite clumsy from a kind of user control perspective to have to constantly specify the name of an app. You know, ideally you want to say, call me a cab. But what you're probably going to have to say is, Uber, call me a cab, or open the Uber app and order a cab to my current location, or something like that. And so there's this balance to be struck between clarity, to your point about user intent, and then not making it super awkward for the user to have to spell out every single detail of what they want to happen. And, um, you know, there's the other question about, you know, navigation, for example, you know, You've never been allowed to set a different default app for maps or navigation so that you can't easily trigger, you know, Google navigation from Siri or from anywhere else. You have to open the app and then explicitly navigate to a particular point uh, using touch interactions or, or the voice search within Google Maps. Uh, but in theory, at least Siri could allow you to navigate using Google Maps. But what's the wording that you're going to use to trigger that? And how does Apple control that? How does Apple allow a developer to set it up? How does it avoid two developers picking the same phrase? Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff to think through here, and I'm really curious to see how that's implemented because it's not straightforward. I agree, and I and I think you also pointed out one of the restrictions we could expect to see is uh, that Apple's not going to potentially not allow duplication of Siri commands where Apple already has built-in apps doing that. So they may just say you can't call it music, you know, unless it's just. Well, even if it, it right now you can open the Spotify app by using Siri, but that's all you can do. Right. But it wouldn't surprise me if if Apple sort of says, "Look, there can't be duplication in any of the basic stuff that we already do." Right. Um, there might be some exceptions to that, like I could picture weather apps having more latitude because it's not like Apple never makes really a lot tried of money off space. Of, yeah, right. yeah. It's not like Apple has a strong interest in in owning the weather reports mm-hmm. you get from Siri. Um, I do think one of the one of the things you will see though, and you're going to see a thousand developers jump on this idea really quickly if this pans out next week to be third party support in Siri, is you're going to see Siri customized Siri utility apps. Like mm-hmm. the idea is, yeah. a developer will sit down and kind of look at all the cool stuff that that Siri will be able to do for a third party app, and then it's going to. Uh, I just called you just, it. Hey I was going to say you yeah. just triggered your Hey Siri. I heard it. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, oh man. Okay. So luckily, it only came up on my iPhone and not both my iPhone and iPad. Right. <laughs> but anyway, the but the point is, is that uh, um, I you know I think you're going to see uh, these sort of utility apps that are all about using all this new stuff that Siri can do, mm-hmm. and it'll be a, an app 
essentially dedicated to making Siri more useful. Yeah. Um, which I, I'm kind of excited about. You know, when it comes to those sort of utility apps over time, the cream the crop usually rises and, and, and it ends up being worthwhile. And so I think that'll be a cool thing to see happen is how developers, rather than trying to retrofit Siri into the apps they've already created, create entirely new apps to, to make Siri more powerful. Yeah, and, and basically whether the whole purpose of the app is to perform a particular function that can be triggered by Siri. So right. that you know you no longer have this complex you know visual user interface. You basically have some customizable functions, and you just say, you know, you go into the app and you specify this is what I want you to do when I summon you through Siri. And then every time you do it, then it just triggers that specific action, and it's very straightforward. And so great while you're driving, or while you're out and about, or while you've got your hands full, or whatever. You you know unlock the house Siri, or um, order me a pizza Siri, or um, you know I'm going to be home in half an hour Siri, you know, and it triggers you know AC to kick in or whatever it might be. So you can and, imagine and a lot of stuff like that. Exactly, and ultimately that has to be the future of, of, of voice, digital voice assistants, because it can't be one company that comes up with all those possible use cases. Yeah, absolutely. There's just no way. Yeah. I mean, it's it's obviously the case because Apple hasn't already done it, and Google hasn't already done it, and mm -hmm. so. So you have to open this up to the universe of third-party developers to to sort of, you know, search out every little nook and cranny of usefulness where these can can where you know these voice assistants can be actually made, I don't know, worthwhile. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I, I wonder if we'll see some. I mean, that's really the, the premise of the original. There's an app for that campaign, right? It was like this right. iPhone exactly. is great out of the box, but there's an app for all the other stuff, um, you know. And this is now going to be the same thing with Siri, but um, yeah, so now there's Siri for that, right? Exactly. Um, but uh, I think the other thing that we may well see is that Apple bakes in quite a few more sort of pre-integrations. You know, they have Facebook yeah. and Twitter, for example, right now, so you can post status to Facebook or post a tweet to Twitter. Um, you know, I could see them working with a number of partners to bake in some of the stuff so that the commands are nice sure. and simple. So I don't know if Uber would be one of them, for example. Uber seems to be very open to working with third parties. You mentioned MG Siegler's post about Facebook Messenger and Uber integration, but they've done quite a few of those. Um, you know, it's, the Apple's got to be careful not to prefer one of these services over another. Um, they've also got a partnership with DD out in China now. So um, that makes things interesting. But so the point is that you might well see some pre-baked integrations with third parties along the lines of what they already do with Facebook and Twitter and then opening up the API for everybody else. Right. Um, in general, I think the other thing we might see with Siri, and we should move on from this topic soon, but is you know there's three components to what makes one of these voice assistants good. One is voice recognition, one is natural language processing, and the third is actually doing something with that information. And what we've been talking about largely addresses the third of those elements. I would expect voice recognition to continue to get better. It's something that Apple's no doubt working on constantly. We've seen advances from Google and others on that over the recent months, and I would expect Apple to talk that up too. The natural language processing is an area where I feel like Siri's been kind of weak. It really does well if it's a pre-configured query uh, but it doesn't do very well with things that it hasn't encountered before. And this vocal IQ acquisition that they made a little while ago specialized in kind of conversational interactions with voice. And so I could easily see, A, that the natural language processing would get better, but B, that they might well do more with the kind of multi-step multi, multi, uh, multi -step conversations rather than simple kind of question and answer 
type stuff so that you retain the context from previous queries so that you drill down on something. And I think that's going to be particularly useful if you want to be able to then invoke a third-party service. So your first question would be, what movies are playing right now? Second question would be, which movie theater is that one playing at? Third one would be, which times is it playing at that theater? Uh, and then the fourth one would be book me a ticket for the five o'clock showing or whatever. And, you know, you can't do that with Siri right now. And for two reasons, one, you can't continue a conversation Two, uh, there's no third party integration. So if you had those two things, suddenly new interactions become possible. Um, and so I, I could see those two things going kind of hand in hand. Yeah, I agree. In fact, that's one of the things that I think has me excited about the Siri announcements that everybody's been expecting for next week. Because Apple, you know, at WWDC is is announcing stuff that they're shipping. I mean, they're this is all stuff that's going to be in the hands of developers next Monday afternoon. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's exciting about that is whatever improvements they do announce this series will be available for people to monkey around with right away. Right. And that to me is exciting. I mean, if you look at what Google announced, you know, when we did the rundown on Google I/O a few episodes ago, um, the one of the things that we talked about was how these are all sort of future advances that are not yeah. yet shipping. I mean, yeah. in fact, especially because it's all tied to Google Home and they're, they're, you know, that's supposed to come sometime by the end of the year. But that mm-hmm. promo video where they're showing what Google Assistant can do in your home, I mean, all of that was hypothetical at this point. I mean, right. there wasn't any th- feature that anybody can actually, not even a developer with any pre-release software, none of that can happen right now. And what's yeah. going to be really cool about next week with Siri is that whatever they do to it, developers are going to be posting blog posts and tweeting about, oh my gosh, I just did this with Siri. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And even, I mean, that's the thing. We're used to this with I.O. that, you know, new versions of Android don't release to the public for months and then regular people don't get them for another year or so after that. I mean, Marshmallow just got to 10%, um, you know, a couple of weeks after they announced the next release um, in detail. And so, um, you know, that's the other thing is even if you're not a developer or a beta program user, even, you know, by September, you'll be able to use all this stuff as a regular user. And, you know, 80 something percent will be using it within a few months. So um, that's worth mentioning. Um, let's move on to talk about iMessage. I mean, we mentioned this briefly. It was something that we covered in episode 33 when we talked about iMessage as a platform. I'm really hoping that we start to see some of that this time around. I mean, you mentioned earlier, everybody else is doing it. Apple hasn't yet. And this is a point that I think is worth making too. Apple has a disadvantage by going last in the calendar in terms of its developer events. So it's another point that I've been making to some of these reporters I've been talking to. Right now, we're comparing the 2015 version of Apple's stuff to the 2016 version of everybody else's stuff. Um, so, and in many cases, to the point you were making just now, it doesn't exist yet. Um, you know, Echo clearly does exist, and, and so that's a fair comparison to make because it's competing in the market today. But you know, the Google Assistant, Google Home doesn't exist yet. Um, you know, the Microsoft bot stuff that was announced doesn't really exist yet in most cases. Facebook Messenger's bots, there are a handful of them, but they're really not delivering on the vision. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's been announced but doesn't exist yet. And Apple hasn't announced anything yet because they haven't had the developer event yet. And so I think next week we'll be in a much better position to evaluate kind of whether Apple is quote unquote behind or not when it comes to these assistants and AI in general and and all the rest of it. But I think another area is iMessage where, you know, Apple has a potential to turn this into a platform to do interesting things with it that are competitive with what else has been announced over the last few months. We just don't know what that is yet. There haven't been anywhere near as many reports about it. One report I saw recently did talk about peer-to-peer payments in iMessage, um, which is something I, you know, ever since they launched Apple Pay, I thought was an obvious next step for them to do. And so I'm really curious to see if we see that. But there's all kinds of other stuff that we discussed in that earlier episode that they could easily 
announce whether that's conversational UI and bots and, and the platform elements opening it up to businesses and so on uh, better previews within message for things like Apple Music and Apple News and files and so on there's a lot that they could be doing here uh, and, and so I hope that we really see iMessage move forward uh, next week yeah it'll be interesting to see if Apple has come up with some ways to use iMessage that other people haven't yet I think payments not that nobody's using messaging for payments, but not so much in the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think payments is actually one of the more likely places Apple t will will go with iMessage next week, pr primarily because of Apple Pay. I mm -hmm. mean, they, you know, they, they've built a really strong payments network with Apple Pay, and the people who use it tend to love it. And so I could see um, payments getting baked into iMessage before anything else, before a third-party you know, developer access or bots or any of the other things. Yeah, you get some great network effects too because the challenge with Apple That's Pay right. is your merchant doesn't support it. There's nothing you can do, but you can convince your friends to start using you know Apple peer-to-peer -peer payments. Um, you know, so you get some great network effects. I'm using it. My friends using it. They tell their friend about it, and suddenly it takes off. You know, becomes viral. And you know, if you brand it somehow with Apple Pay in iMessage or whatever, then it starts to get people with these positive associations with Apple Pay, even though they might not be able to use it in their local supermarket. Um, the one challenge with payments is, of course, Apple Pay works with a credit card and peer-to-peer -peer payments need to work with a bank account in order for them to be realistic because uh, otherwise you're paying percent, you know, several percent in fees and that's not really that attractive. So uh, that's going to be a big transition that Apple will need to make is getting people to set up their bank accounts. And that's not as trivial as just taking a picture of your credit card. Um, and right. so if they do do this, I'm interested to see how they implement that and how they make that process as straightforward as possible. You know, maybe you take a picture of a check. I don't know, um, because that has your routing number and your account number and therefore right. the, all the information you need to set up an ACH uh, connection. So it assumes people still have a checkbook. Indeed, I do, <laughs> but maybe other people I don't. do too, but I don't know. All maybe the millennials the, I, out there don't, yeah. know. I don't know. I need to ask somebody 15 years younger than me. There you go. <laughs> um, Okay, um, let's talk about some of the other platforms. I mean, we've, we've talked about elements of iOS already. Is there anything else that you're looking forward to in iOS specifically? Um, yeah, iPad Pro enhancements. I think this is actually going to be a big deal next week, just guessing, kind of throwing it out there. When, when we think back on Tim Cook describing the iPad Pro as sort of Apple's vision of the future of computing, um, that tells me that they've been working really hard at it and we'll probably have a bunch of stuff to show off. And so I think we'll see a much better version of split view. I think we'll see, I can imagine, more sophisticated file management. Um, uh, and I think we're going to see stuff that developers are going to get excited about, you know, uh, that will make the iPad feel more like a primary computing platform than it does today. Um, you know, this... <clears throat> You know, there are rumors, for example, of next week uh, OS X being rebranded to Mac OS, which sort of takes it from being Apple's, you know, core essential thing, which is kind of how Apple started moving into iOS and these other platforms are saying this is all built on OS X. When, when they rebrand it to Mac OS, it's going to basically imply all of these OS platforms are on equal footing in, our, in, in the way we look at them and think about them. And... Uh, and I think iOS is going to move more and more toward a primary computing platform. And I think we're going to see big changes next week. I haven't really sat down to think through what they might be. And other people have done a pretty good job of this. I think I think it was Serenity Caldwell on iMore that had a really great post on, on uh, pro features that she's hoping to see next week. I think it was her. Um, but, uh, but a lot of people have been thinking through this. I, I, I think 
without a doubt, Apple has too. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's an interesting angle. Uh, you know, I, I wrote a piece a while back about the case for Pad OS and basically uh, forking iOS into two versions, one for phones and one for either the iPad as a whole or iPad Pro specifically. But it really feels like they could they could do a lot more to optimize uh, iOS for the Pro stuff, as you were saying, but the iPad form factor in general. Like, it just doesn't feel like version of iOS that was originally designed for a three and a half inch device in 2007 is still the right fit for a device in 2016 that could be up to 12 inches large. Um, you know, it feels like there are some more optimizations that can happen there. Um, of course, there are a couple of other platforms as well, tvOS and watchOS. Personally, I'm hoping they get pretty short shrift at WWDC. Um, watchOS is funny because this would be watchOS 3 if they really do announce changes to it next week. And that'd be the third version of software for the same piece of hardware. And I don't think Apple's done that before uh, for any of its newer device uh, categories. Uh, certainly iOS gets new hardware and new software every year. Most of the other stuff does too. Um, you know, it's to be three versions of software for one version of hardware. And it just gets challenging to keep moving the software forward when the hardware's stuck. Uh, and so in some ways, I like them just to hold off on updating watchOS until they can show us new hardware in the fall. I'm assuming they're not going to show us new hardware next week. There'll be no leaks at all, which suggests that that's the case. Uh, maybe they'll preview it and it won't launch until the fall. That'd be one way of doing it. I just can't see it happening. And that just means that when a bunch of new software updates on a device that what I feel needs more than anything else is new hardware, just more powerful processes and so on. So I'm, I'm curious to see how that goes, but I'm hoping it gets fairly short shrift. Same for tvOS. Uh, I don't feel they need new hardware there. I just feel like it's got pretty good already. And at this point, what we really need is uh, for developers to step up and, and make better apps for it. And I think the one thing that Apple needs to do here is re remove the restriction on the third-party controller stuff. Yeah, I agree. I think Apple really hamstrung it as a gaming platform with those limitations. I think they sort of lost the they lost interest to a bunch of developers. The 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 remote is just a terrible gaming controller. The Siri remote is really nice for everything else on the Apple TV, and I genuinely like it. I really do. But uh, but man, as a gaming controller, my kids we I mean so we bought a. A, a Nimbus controller when we got our Apple TV and my kids never use uh, the Siri remote as a controller unless they have to like where they're you know playing crossy road like with somebody else or something right. like that I and and it was just an odd it was it was just essentially a way of saying hey hey game developers you know we're not interested in you on this platform. It was a strange yeah. thing. And I get the reason for Apple doing it because they don't want people to buy an Apple TV and and have to need anything else that sort of, you know, cuts against the 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 whole simplicity ethic that comes with Apple and their products, but mm -hmm. but gaming has never ever been that way and uh, and it and Apple sort of imposing that perspective on on that market and on that 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 world I think was a a big mistake. Yeah, and they so it'll be interesting to see if they backtrack bit, on that. Yeah, no, absolutely, I agree. I'd love to see them do that. I don't know that it will unleash suddenly this whole slew of you know hardcore games or anything like that, but I think it will at least give gamers a bit more confidence that Apple's interested in having their games on the platform. Right. So Apple Music's another thing that we're expecting to get updates on Apple Music and iTunes and not just the services, but the, the UI and everything around them. Um, certainly been several credible reports that iTunes would get another overhaul. Uh, at this point, I want to see iTunes on, on the desktop split into five different apps. 
I want to see a sync app. I want to see a music app. I want to see a video app. I want to see a store uh, for content and I want to see a store for apps. Um, and that's five apps uh, where there's currently one, but it feels like the biggest problem with iTunes on the desktop right now is it's trying to do all that stuff at once, and there's no real connection between most of that stuff. Like I never need to play music and jump switchy to playing a video um, or to jump quickly to updating an app that doesn't even exist on that device, um, you know, that's just syncing to some other device. You know, I don't know how many people still sync with a computer. I suspect it's the minority now. Um, you know, why is syncing still a major feature of this? piece of software so that feels like the solution to me i'm not as sure what the solution is on the iphone to be honest i've i've always felt like having your own music and the music you get through apple music together is a kind of a core part of the value proposition and surveys that i've done kind of back that up so i don't know that they can just ditch all your owned music library from it and simplify it in that way but i don't know what the answer is beyond that either but i feel like the the desktop app just is the one that really needs the most help Oh, I totally agree. I, I, and I'd add that if you have a good separate sync app, you don't need an apps, an iOS app store on the Mac. I, I mean, once upon a time you did, uh, way, way, way back when in the early days of the iPhone. But, but using the desktop to browse and purchase apps just doesn't make sense to me. And it seems like it's adding a, a, a pretty substantial layer of complexity that's not serving a useful purpose. I can understand organizing apps in the Sync app. I think, you know, occasionally it's been useful to me to be able to, you know, plug in my iPhone to iTunes and then sort of reorder my home screen right. the way I like it. Um, but that has nothing to do with actually browsing and purchasing apps. Mm -hmm. um, plus, the, if you really want to browse apps on, on your desktop, you could always just do it through a web browser right um and then it's you know it's pretty trivial to to buy things to to, to buy apps on the device itself i i can't even remember the last time i bought an app in itunes instead of buying it just on my iphone or ipad yeah no i very very the only time i ever do that is if i'm on my computer i see somebody linked to an app somewhere and then when i click on the link it pops it open itunes and i say okay get and then because i have my devices set up to auto download in the background it will appear magically on my iphone later and it's just easier than pulling out my iphone and finding it all over again but um yeah there's very little utility and there's no reason why that couldn't work in the browser and that's the other thing i'd love to see happen is that apple create you know a browser-based version of the itunes not just preview pages but actually let me sign into my account in the browser on whatever computer i'm on and say buy this piece of music or you know download this app and then specify which devices i want it on it'd be great for the apple tv for example um you know i saw a tweet from the amazon developer uh, twitter account this week that talked about an ability that developers have within their apps on other platforms to say, please also install this on my Amazon Fire TV device. And that feels like, yeah, why wouldn't my iPhone allow me to do that too? I, if I have an app that I really like, give me the option to install it on my Apple TV, on my iPad, wherever else I want to install it. Uh, you know, and let me do that from the browser too. And so it feels like you could just take a lot of that functionality out of the iTunes application, stick it in the browser instead. I agree. And most of what's happening in the iTunes store is essentially web technology anyway. Right, right. And so there's, I agree, there's no reason it shouldn't be happening inside a browser yeah. uh, all on its own without needing an iTunes wrapper around it. Right. Yeah, you know, it'll be fascinating to see what Apple's willing to do there. Um, it's, it's been, Apple has been strangely slow to fix iTunes when you think of how long people have been complaining about it. Yeah. And, uh, and so... Um, I don't know. I think it's been long enough, though. I suspect Apple's going to do something big about it next week. Yeah, yeah. No, hopefully they will. Um, 
Speaking of big changes, App Store. Um, so we referred to this briefly earlier, but Phil Schiller did the rounds of interviews over the last few days and prepped people for a set of stories about changes to the App Store ahead of next week. And one of the stated reasons was there was just so much to talk about next week. And I'm not surprised by that. I mean, I did some analysis for a tech opinions piece I did this week, and I produced a chart off the back of it that kind of broke down the time at the last three WWDC keynotes between different things. And, you know, last time around, you had Apple Music that took up, you know, half an hour or so. You had uh, WatchOS that took up another 20 minutes, you know, and it really squeezed down uh, other stuff that Apple normally talks about. I mean, Tim Cook's intro has gone from 17 minutes in 2013 to 10 minutes in 2014 to five minutes in 2015. You know, OS X been squeezed down from half an hour to 18 minutes last year. iOS has stayed pretty constant at about an hour. Uh, no hardware for the last two years. It probably won't be again this time around. You know, there's just so much to talk about. So it doesn't surprise me in some ways that we've seen some of this stuff pre-announced today. But some potentially fairly big changes to the App Store. Um, subscriptions now available to any app, although the exact meaning of any is still up in the air. Brent Simmons had an interesting piece about this earlier because uh, there's a strange word, eligible and appropriate um, that Apple uses in some of its uh, communication about this. So every app is eligible to use it. Uh, but it's not appropriate for any app. So does that mean that Apple will actually prevent you from using it or just that it wouldn't be a good idea? That's what's not clear at this point. So hopefully we'll get more clarity on that over the next few days. But this starts to address some of the beefs that people have with the App Store model and the business models that it either enables or disables. Um, there's no paid upgrades here, but it's actually quite challenging to do paid upgrades in the context of continuous updates to apps. So I think the subscription model will be what most of those who've wanted upgrades will end up doing. Um, but there's potentially a big change. The amount uh, of Apple's cut goes down by half uh, from year two onwards for people that stick with a subscription that long. So it goes down from 30% to 15%. Um, there's going to be search advertising now. So a lot of a whole range of interesting stuff. Well, and it'll be interesting to see how much the, uh, the in-app purchases model changes because subscription revenue is now available to all kinds of games where it wasn't before. Yeah. And, and that to me half scares me, half encourages me. <laughs> there are some games where I'd be happy to pay a subscription as long as we are playing the game in my family. Right. In fact, uh, this, is how, uh, this is how Dance Dance works on the Apple TV right now, mm. is you can, you, you basically you can get a subscription to access to all of the, the library of songs. And so we signed up for three months because there was a, you know, a deal on three months worth of access and everybody kind of, you know, like, like, like got all into it, used mm -hmm. it up. People got bored with it. And so we didn't renew the subscription. And I, if I'm not going to be able to buy it outright, I like that a lot better than the dink and dunk of having to buy individual songs. Right. Um, and so I can see upside to that, but it also kind of scares me to think of how unfortunately creative some game developers have become <laughs> right with yeah. how yeah. with with app store financials and so i'm worried that uh that there might be some unintended consequences mm -hmm. in the in-app purchase economy that's going to just make things even worse with subscriptions being opened up yeah it could go either way i think i mean i, I suspect yeah. apple i mean they've benefited hugely from in-app purchases but i suspect they're also somewhat uneasy about this model because it lends itself to addictive behavior and you look at any of the numbers, you get 1% of users spending all the money, basically. And, That's right. And you look at the actual numbers, and they're spending hundreds of dollars a year on some of this stuff. And uh, I can see Apple wanting to move away from that without killing it, because it's kind of like the goose that lays the golden eggs. And so 
um, you know, what you do is you set up another goose that lays golden eggs over here in the meantime and uh, encourage people to, to switch goose, geese or whatever, um, to not to stretch the metaphor too far. But the point being that this subscription model could allow these f- quote-unquote free app developers to still have a way to unlock value inside the app for money, but without lending itself to kind of addictive behavior and to people spending way more than they should on this stuff, way more, frankly, than it's worth. And so if somebody really does enjoy a game, they can spend five bucks a month uh, on a regular and and consistent basis to continue playing it with all the functions uh, enabled uh, without, you know, having the risk that you end up spending hundreds of dollars on it. Um, And so I can think this could be a healthier model as well, but of course it's still open to potential abuse. I agree. I, I think it does have the potential of broadening the base of customers of, of willing of customers willing to pay, and and that means less abuse rather than mm-hmm. more abuse. And so that is yeah. exciting. Like yeah, I think true. I think of some of the games that I play that have a limited number of turns, you know, within a time limit. So right. you know, you get five turns within an hour, and then you have to wait an hour for five mm-hmm. more turns to play. And and I I, I would. There are some of these apps. There's no way in a million years I'd pay a buck every time I need to reload my turns, but right. uh, but I would pay a subscription of you know three dollars a month to just be able to play it as much as I want until I'm done with it. Yeah, absolutely. So hopefully, with a broader base, you know, game developers can get to more sane economic models for making money off their games. Yeah. No, absolutely. Okay, well, I think we're about out of time for today, but it's been a good good conversation on both, you know, our sort of look back over the past year and then WWDC. Next week, we will spend, I think, probably most of the episode talking about what is announced at WWDC, and we may even follow up uh, the week after that if we don't get time to discuss everything. So look out for that. I will be there in person on Monday morning uh, in the, I guess it's the Bill Graham Auditorium uh, where the fall event was last year. Um, so I'll be, we'll figure out when we record, we may do one of these, you know, immediately after the fact things, and we may do it in a a usual time slot on Wednesday, uh, with a release on Thursday morning. Um, but we'll, we'll, uh, obviously post it sometime next week. And again, the main focus will be WWDC. No weekly pick for you today. Uh, I'm debating and I may or may not get to this by the time this episode is up, but debating putting a page up on the podcast website too, that lists all of our weekly picks from the past year on those weeks when we've done them, just so you have an easy place to find all of those things that we've recommended to you, uh, during our first year. We'll, we'll keep doing that. Um, when we're not doing sort of different formats over the next year, I'm sure. Um, thank you for being with us today and uh, to the extent that some of you have been with us from the beginning thank you for sticking with us through all that time we hope you found it interesting and useful feel free as always to leave us a review on itunes in particular uh, but also to give us any kind of feedback if you want us to cover a topic um, let us know on twitter is the easiest way to do that Uh, i'm jan dawson and aaron is aaron miller on twitter so we have nice easy handles to remember Uh, or leave a comment on the website and we'll pick it up there. And again, for reference, the website is podcast.beyonddevices, so P-O-D-C-A-S-T dot B-E-Y-O-N-D-E-V-I-C dot E-S. That's where you can find us and that's where all our links and so on are always found every week as well. So thanks again and we'll be with you again next week.